Welcome to this episode of the Australian Navy History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Commander Greg Swindon. The most renowned group of ships in the Royal Australian Navy's history is without doubt the five destroyers of the 10th Destroyer Flotilla. The ships, the destroyer leader HMAS Stewart, and the destroyers Vampire, Vendetta, Voyager and Waterhen. During World War II, the German propaganda minister, Dr Joseph Goebbels, called them another consignment of scrap iron from Australia. So the famous name the Scrap Iron Flotilla was born, and became a badge of honour for the men who served in them, similar to the naming of the Rats of Tobruk. To discuss the story of the Scrap Iron Flotilla, I am joined by Dr Carl James, who is the head of the Military History Section at the Australian War Memorial. Carl has written extensively on Australian military history, including on the Rats of Tobruk. Flight Lieutenant Greg Pearce, who is writing a book on HMAS Stewart's Mediterranean deployment. His grandfather, able seaman torpedoman Jack Cleaves, served on board Stewart. And also by Dr John Nash, also from the Australian War Memorial. John is a Naval Reserve Officer and was the winner of the 2019 Mackenzie Prize and has a particular interest in naval operations in the Mediterranean dating back to ancient Greece. We are recording this during COVID-19, so our guests are joining us online. Thank you for joining me. First off, Greg Pearce, can you tell us something of these five destroyers? When were they built and what were their physical characteristics? Well, good afternoon all. Uh, so four of the five ships were virtually identical, uh, with Stuart being slightly larger. Uh, they were all built for the Royal Navy between 1917 and 1919. And uh, in comparison to a modern uh, contemporary Anzac-class frigate, they were about 15 metres smaller in overall length and about half the displacement. HMAS Vampire, Vendetta, Voyager and Waterhen of the V&W class displaced 1,470 tonnes fully loaded at a length overall of 312 foot 1 inches, um, a maximum speed of 34 knots and a crew complement of around about 127, though that would naturally vary. Uh, the armament was uh, four four-inch guns in single mounts, a single two-pounder, six 21-inch torpedo tubes in two triple mounts, as well as an assortment of 50 cal and 303 machine guns. Later in the war, they were fitted with 20 millimeter Ehrlichens. Uh, HMA's Vampire was completed as a V-class flotilla leader, which basically meant she had slightly more accommodation for the flotilla commander and his staff. Other than that, those four ships were essentially the same. HMA's Stewart, on the other hand, was built from the keel up as a Scott-class flotilla leader, and so was a little bit larger and more heavily armed. She displaced 2,053 tonnes fully loaded, was about 20 foot longer, uh, had a couple of knots extra speed, could do 36 knots, and a slightly larger crew complement of around about 185. Her armament was five 4.7-inch guns in single mounts, a single 3-inch gun, two two-pounders, that's six 21-inch torpedoes, as well as the 50 cal and 303 machine guns. So being slightly larger and faster, the flotilla commander could move around and manoeuvre where he needed to be within the destroyer formation. One notable addition just prior to their deployment to the Mediterranean was the installation of a Type 123 Alpha Astic sonar set for any submarine warfare. And they were among the first ships of the Royal Australian Navy to have Astic. 
During World War II, um, ships went through several reconfiguration changes as is normal and you'd expect, and the general trend across the scrap iron flotilla was a reduction in their surface-to-surface armament and an increase both in their anti-aircraft guns and their anti-submarine warfare weapons and systems, uh, which would reflect the threats they were, they were facing. John Nash, why did these old ships come into the RAN in 1933, and what was their role in the Australian squadron? Yes, uh, so in August of 1932, the Committee of Imperial Defence recommended that Australia should commission another cruiser and more destroyers. Um, This was agreed to by uh, Senator George Pearce. As mentioned, the destroyers were Royal Navy vessels. Uh, They had been laid up after the First World War and essentially were in reserve. Uh, And they became replacements for the RAN's S-class destroyers, uh, stalwart, success, swordsman, Tasmania, and tattoo. Now, as part of this, uh, the RAN needed to free up some resources, uh, especially personnel, So the seaplane carrier Albatross was paid off to the reserve on the 26th of April, 1933. Uh, This freed up some 400 sailors to man the new ships and the new destroyers were commissioned into the RAN on the 11th of October, 1933 in the UK. Now, uh, not everyone in Australia thought this rearmament was necessarily a good idea. And in a House of Reps defense estimates debate in November 1933, uh, one of the members remarked, as an Australian with a family in this country, I would be prepared to urge that Australia should not bother about arming to defend herself because no other country will interfere with her. By doing so, she would set an example as the Scandinavian countries have successfully done and nobody would interfere with her. Uh, Very interesting words I find in the current climate. Um, So the new destroyers might have been of an old vintage, and I'll come back to Vendetta later on, uh, but they proved useful in a range of different operational and support roles. Um, As destroyers, they were used primarily for anti-submarine work and escort duties, uh, as well as screening for cruisers, uh, very classic destroyer work. Uh, But in peacetime, they were also used for a variety of different roles, uh, such as towing gunnery targets for the army, in the Air Force during exercises. Uh, so really they were, they were workhorse ships, um, ASW primarily with their ASDIC, but uh, as the war would show later on, they, they had a range of different roles they could achieve. Thanks, John. Carl James, it was very early in the war, I think it might've even been December 1939, that the destroyers were sent to the Mediterranean. Why was it considered important to send them so far from Australia? Yeah, well, it was even earlier than that. Um, we had a very early request to send the uh, destroyers over to the Mediterranean. Now, we just need to keep in mind that as pretty much as Greg and John have alluded to, much of the work of the Royal Australian Navy performed during the, during the Second World War was really related to escort duties and protecting um, shipping. And the main thing from Australia's point of view was to maintain the link between the Middle East and Great Britain via the Indian Ocean and to make sure that communications between Britain and the United States across the Pacific remained open. So as um, previous, well, as both Greg and John both mentioned, what made these destroyers really significant was, despite their age, it was their anti-submarine capability. So in September, the ships had actually left Australia and were sent to Singapore. But the British Admiralty had requested um, the destroyers to be sent to the Mediterranean. 
The reason for this is because even though the Mediterranean um, had been a very powerful fleet before the start of the Second World War, the Royal Navy had redeployed its ships elsewhere to fight the Germans and recognised that this left the, the Mediterranean fleet vulnerable. Um, Italy, even though it was neutral, had a very large and modern, powerful navy. It had something like 100 submarines and quite a sizable air force. So the Mediterranean was uh, at risk. Um, and in recognising this gap, the Admiralty requested our destroyers. Now, initially, there was some reluctance from the Australian War Cabinet to meet this request. Uh, the Australian government thought they were much more concerned about German surface raiders and pocket battleships. But after a little bit of wrangling between the Admiralty and the Australian War Cabinet, um, the British agreed to send two cruisers out to our region, to our waters, in exchange for the deployment of the destroyers to the Mediterranean. So in um, really in November, the Australian, the destroyers, like Heck Wallace, Stewart and the others, left Singapore, sailed to the Mediterranean, and they arrived at Malta in January of 1940. Greg Pearce, in two earlier episodes of this series, on the Battle of the Java Sea and Saunders Strait, we discussed the captain of HMAS Perth, Captain Heck Waller. But his fame began when he led the Scrap Iron Flotilla. What was he like, and why did he gain such public recognition? Uh, captain Hector MacDonald Laws Waller was, was a character, um, but uh, it was reflected in the way Admiral uh, Andrew Cunningham, commander of the Royal Navy's Mediterranean fleet, introduced him to Prime Minister Robert Menzies on the 6th of February 1941 when he was described as, quote, one of the greatest captains who ever sailed the seas. And these were not just idle words intended to reinforce the Commonwealth Alliance. Captain Waller had, awarded, had been awarded a Distinguished Service Order and bar and was twice mentioned in dispatches while serving under Cunningham in the Mediterranean. Uh, as discussed uh, just then by um, Dr. James, um, HMAS Stewart and the Scrapline was put in charge of the Scrapline Flotilla on the 1st of September 39. He was a competent and aggressive tactical commander uh, and a character equally at ease on any deck of society. Uh, enough of a larrikin lad to understand and be genuinely liked by his sailors. He even submitted to the authority of King Neptune during a crossing of the line ceremony, despite being the ship's captain and despite having crossed the equator before. He was a professional hard taskmaster. He earned the awe and respect of his officers. And he was also able to easily mix in polite society, developing a genuine friendship and mutual respect with Admiral Cunningham and his wife, Nuna. Um, and, and if you'll indulge me, uh, Nuna Cunningham ran a Red Cross ladies group knitting winter woolies for sailors who deployed without enough uh, cold weather gear. And possibly they also made clothes uh, for the orphans of Malta, uh, whose parents had been killed in the bombing. When the Australian destroyers were attached to the inshore squadron working the north coast of Africa, Nuna asked Waller if he could acquire some sewing machines from abandoned Italian towns. Uh, Waller obliged and two sewing machines uh, were probably successfully acquired from Derna on the 15th of February 1941 when Stuart made a port call there. Uh, Waller instructed his sailors of the shore party to only acquire sewing machines and had warned that other attractive items may be booby-trapped. When the men returned to the ship with two sewing machines and a particularly nice pistol, uh, Waller reprimanded the men with words to the effect, well, if you're going to disregard my instructions, you could have at least got me one. Uh, and to me, that story illustrates his ability to span several classes of society in his effort to get a job done, 
I think it's also noteworthy that Nona Cunningham personally approached Waller with a, with a request of that nature. And I think that speaks to the very personable relationship he had with the Admiral himself. Yes, he certainly was a character. There's a lot of stories about Waller, and he's held in exceptionally high regard even today. Indeed. John Nash, can you broadly explain the type of operations the Scrap Iron Flotilla took part in as part of the British Mediterranean fleet? Yes. Um, so as, as we saw, the, um, the flotilla arrived uh, in late 1939, early 1940, um, arriving in Malta. Uh, Admiral Tove, who at that stage was the commander of destroyers in the Mediterranean, and then later the deputy under Cunningham, uh, told the Australians from the outset that there was plenty of hard work ahead with many long hours at sea. Uh, prophetic words to be sure, as we'll see. Um, now at this stage, uh, the Australian destroyers were the 19th destroyer division. Uh, and then on the 27th of May, they were combined with the Royal Navy destroyers of the 20th destroyer division, uh, HMS's Dainty, Diamond, Decoy and Defender uh, to become the 10th destroyer flotilla under the command of Heck Waller. Uh, who's made captain of destroyers in June 1940. Now, uh, the entry of Italy into the war uh, and subsequently the fall of France uh, very much changed the landscape or the seascape, I should say, uh, of the Mediterranean. Uh, and suddenly Malta became a, a tiny bastion in the midst of a very hostile environment uh, with very few friendly shores outside of that small island. Uh, so the destroyers were tasked with a, a range of different duties, uh, primarily escort and patrol work across the Mediterranean, uh, both single ship uh, and in pairs and groups. Uh, and uh, HMAS Stewart was even tasked into the Atlantic uh, as an escort for the British carrier Glorious. Later on, other ships of the flotilla would provide carrier escort in the Mediterranean for Glorious uh, and Ark Royal. Um, so as a bit of an example uh, of different roles, Stuart was involved in uh, a couple different tasking, taskings. Uh, she helped tow the disabled British tanker, the Trochus, uh, and rescued the crew of a downed British seaplane. Um, in the early hours of the 21st of June, uh, Stuart, along with HMAS Sydney and six other warships, bombarded the enemy positions at Bardia, uh, a town in Libya about 70 miles east of Tobruk. Um, and Stuart's sailors were later told by British soldiers who had captured the town that they found remnants of Stuart's 4.7 inch shells right in the target area. So uh, a nice little bit of a uh, compliment to their gunnery skills. Um, and as, as I mentioned earlier, ASW was, was the most important role of the destroyers. Um, and this was done uh, as part of the battle fleet, uh, as convoy escorts, uh, and also independently or in groups on anti-submarine sweeps. Uh, of great concern were mine-laying submarines uh, and the discovery of a minefield off the port of Alexandria in Egypt pointed to such a presence. So Stuart found a floating mine uh, and her ASDIC soon discovered a great number of mines surrounding the ship, uh, one of which came far too close for comfort alongside her. Um, however, uh, Waller was able to maneuver the ship out of out of the minefield and came back with two British minesweepers who were able to sweep the minefield. Uh, not long after, Voyager and Stuart were both involved in the hunt for an Italian mine laying submarine. Uh, and although they thought they had sunk it at one point, 
Italian records later showed that it had narrowly escaped the two destroyers. Uh, however, Voyager would later be successful hunting submarines. So between the 27th and 29th of June, she encountered two Italian submarines. Uh, the first was forced to the surface uh, and surrendered after attacks by the four British destroyers, with Voyager rescuing 13 of the Italian submariners. Uh, and on the 29th of June, uh, while they were sweeping about 160 miles uh, west of Crete, uh, the Italian submarine Urbina Scavelli was spotted on the surface uh, and attacked with depth charges by Voyager uh, and HMS Ilix and Defender. So the attack forced the submarine to the surface and the survivors were taken off by the destroyers and sunk by gunfire. Um, so really these uh, help show that the destroyers were, were true workhorses conducting maritime operations throughout the Mediterranean and the Aegean seas. Uh, they provided cover to the army forces ashore in Egypt and Libya. They carried troops and supplies, they engaged in fleet actions, uh, and most importantly, they conducted a lot of anti-submarine work. Sounds like they were very busy indeed. Carl James. Most notably, the flotilla took part, along with the cruiser HMS Sydney, in the first fleet action in the Mediterranean since the Napoleonic Wars, the Battle of Calabria. How did that fare? Yeah, <clears throat> pretty well, actually. Um, so in mid, on the mid-afternoon of the 9th of July, the Australian ships participated in the main action fought between the Italian and the British fleets of um, Calabria and Italy. And it was one of the, the very few pitched battles or pitched sea battles fought in the Mediterranean during the war, with both cruiser and battleships engaging each other. Now, the British fleet was divided into three groups. Uh, Stuart was operating with Force B, that included the British battleship HMS Warspite, while HMS Voyager and Vampire were with Force C, which was screening the British aircraft carrier HMS Eagle. Now, given the number of accounts written afterwards by both Australian officers and ratings, it must have been very exciting, intensely busy, and clearly a, a very memorable action. So one rating aboard uh, Vampire wrote in his diary, and I quote, the sea's lousy with ships. Looks like all the Mediterranean fleet is here. While a more eloquent sailor from Stuart wrote afterwards, and I'll quote, in, in the perfect visibility, blue sea and cloudless sky, the cruisers on the wing and the destroyers in the semicircular formation, screening in front of the battleships made a picture no one who saw it can ever forget. Now, as the action began, signalman Leslie uh, Clifford, whose usual action station was a Stuart's ex-gun platform, watched the British destroyers on either side of the Australian ship and likened them to a pack of hounds out for a hunt as they bounded yapping after their prey. So Sydney engaged the Italian cruisers, while Stuart participated in an attack against the Italian destroyers. Stuart's first salvo appeared to hit an enemy ship, while Stuart in turn was straddled. The forward guns of all destroyers were firing as fast as they could, as they could load, a sailor from Stuart later remarked, while another commented, the crash of main armament, the rattle of close range weapons, the stark crack of larger anti-aircraft pieces, the tower of spray as enemy shells fell around Warspite and the battleships, the fumes from the cordite, the blast of flame and firing, and the trembling of the ship under high speed made a picture that none can made a picture that can never be reproduced on canvas or celluloid. 
Meanwhile, those working below deck and steward, such as engine room artisipar Bill Reeve, for example, he had a very different impression of the battle. He remembered the sounds of the guns firing, but he also recalled the flakes of paint from the deckhead and asbestos dust, dust falling on him like, snow, like a snowstorm. But they were really too busy to worry about what was going on outside. They were kept busy, their eyes always looking at the gauges uh, and focusing on the machinery. Now, the action lasted about an hour and was somewhat indecisive, but the Italian losses included the uh, cruiser uh, Patolio Corleone, um, which had been devastated by HMAS Sydney. Sounds like Stuart played a major part in that battle. Greg Pierce, two of Stuart's most notable actions were against Italian submarine Gondar and then in the Battle of Matapan. What happened in the case of the Gondar? So this action occurred on the evening of the 29th to 30th of September 1940 and was the culmination of a year's worth of training and combat experience on the ASTIC sets that, the, uh, that uh, uh, Dr Nash and Dr James have been speaking about. Um, it was under the temporary command of Lieutenant Norman Teacher, Royal Navy, who was well liked by the crew and described as having a Viking-like beard and he earned the nickname Whiskers. Another very important officer on board, Stuart, was Lieutenant Geoffrey Corlett, Royal Navy, who had been um, seconded to Australia as a specialist anti-submarine warfare officer um, to help us establish our first ASW school. Uh, so Corlett had probably therefore advised Waller on the ASW training of the flotilla and almost certainly instructed Stuart's ASTIC team, who on that day were sub-lieutenants Cree, Griffin and leading seamen Pike and MacDonald. Uh, on the 28th of September, Stuart burst a steam pipe whilst on one of the convoys that Dr Nash was talking about um, and uh, was actually also on her way to Malta for a refit herself. Um, but when she burst the steam pipe, she couldn't keep up with the convoy and was sent back to Alexandria on her own. Lieutenant Teacher, probably influenced by Waller's example, decided to conduct an anti-submarine warfare sweep off the North African coast as they, uh, as they struggled back to Alexandria. And at 22.15 hours, the ASTIC team detected a submarine. The Gondar's captain, Lieutenant Commander Francesco Brunetti, had probably not yet fully charged the boat's batteries as it was fairly early in the evening, uh, limiting the degree to which he could manoeuvre or escape while submerged. Stewart's ASTIC team remained, maintained a solid sonar contact uh, all night and teacher dropped 26 depth charges during six attacks, the last of which occurred at 0625 in the morning uh, and uh, the ASTIC operators lost contact with Gondar after the, the explosions had subsided. A thermocline had probably formed between the deep cold water layer and the surface water that had been heated by the rising sun and Stuart's sonar pulses refracted off the boundary between those two water layers, missing the submarine. Brunetti had probably anticipated this effect and had been waiting for it. The damaged submarine was sneaking away and broke the surface at 9.30 in the morning, about 1.5 nautical miles from Stuart. Fortunately, a Sunderland flying boat relocated Gondar, conducted two bombing runs and marked the area for Stuart, who had also been joined by the ASW trawler HMS Synodus. Stuart and Synodus opened fire, and at that point, uh, Brunetti ordered his crew to scuttle the submarine and abandon it. Two of the Italian submariners were killed, and the remainder were picked up by Stuart and Synodus. 
Gondar was one of only three boats capable of being a mother submarine for Italy's diver submersibles known as human torpedoes. And this action had thwarted a human torpedo attack on Alexandria. They also captured eight fully trained divers along with the commanding officer of their special forces unit. And this was a significant setback for Italy's special forces campaign who were unable to mount another attack of this kind on Alexandria for over a year. Lieutenant Teacher, Sub-Lieutenants Cree and Griffin were all awarded a Distinguished Service Order for this action, and leading seamen MacDonald and Pike were each awarded a Distinguished Service Medal. Well, it certainly looks like Teacher taught the Italians a lesson in that action. Sorry for that piece of humour. Greg, what was Stuart's role at the Battle of Matapan? Uh, so, uh, unlike Calabria, um, Matapan was a... Uh, a day and night engagement where the Royal Navy was able to get very close to the Italian fleet. Uh, Stuart's contribution came in that night phase. The Italian heavy cruiser Polar had been damaged during an Allied torpedo bomber attack just on dusk on the 28th of March 1941, and the Italians sent two heavy cruisers and four destroyers back to assist her. The British battle fleet arrived just as the Italians were making their rendezvous. Expecting to find their own friendly ships, the Italians were completely taken by surprise. Visibility that night was down to two and a half nautical miles, and at 20 knots, the British battle fleet were covering that distance every seven and a half minutes. Stuart was the first ship to visually sight the Italian force, although the radar operators aboard HMS Ajax and Valiant um, had contact with them prior to that. The British battleships opened fire with 15-inch guns at around about 4,000 yards, and the cruisers Zara and Fume were devastated by that fire. Waller in Stuart, with Havoc in company, uh, closed to finish off the, the, the cruisers, and Stuart engaged Zara and possibly also Fume with guns. Rounds that had, were fired at the British destroyers Griffin and Greyhound from the Italian destroyers could be heard impacting the water from Stuart's open bridge, which is a little bit too close. Havoc was misidentified by the battleship Warspite and was straddled with her six-inch secondary armament, but was fortunately not hit. Stuart was then illuminated with a searchlight, probably also from Warspite, but was not fired upon. At one point during this melee, Waller hoisted Nelson's famous signal, engage the enemy more closely, which was possibly an order to Havoc or perhaps a message to Cunningham. At 2300 hours, Zara was dead in the water and being attended to by the destroyer Afridi that had been misidentified as a light cruiser. Stuart launched all six of her torpedoes at both ships. Up to two probably hit Afridi, causing her to sink within 15 minutes. And Stuart's gun crews continued to engage Zara, which returned fire without scoring hits on Stuart. Stuart and Havoc then undertook evasive manoeuvres to avoid a collision with the destroyer Caduce. Stuart passed within 150 metres of her starboard side, hitting Caduce with multiple rounds from three salvos of 4.7 inch. Havoc then detached and engaged Caduce with both uh, gunfire and torpedoes, sinking her around about 23.15 hours. Whilst turning away from Caduce, Waller uh, narrowly avoided another collision with the destroyer Arani. Stuart then re-engaged Zara from 2,500 yards, setting off secondary explosions and then conducted a search further to the south before reversing his heading. He then came across the hapless Zara again 
uh, didn't recognise her as the same vessel because they'd come across her from the opposite side, re-engaged from 500 yards, and Zara's return fire was wild and ineffective. Stuart's last two salvos then went unanswered. Waller then set course to the northeast and rejoined the fleet around daybreak. For their part in this battle, Waller was awarded a bar to his Distinguished Service Order. The Executive Officer and Gunnery Officer, Lieutenant Commander Robson, was received a Distinguished Service Cross. Uh, Petty Officer Marcus Goodwin received a Distinguished Service Medal and Commissioned Torpedoman Gunner Mr Frank Lay was mentioned in dispatches. Sounds like a very significant activity. Carl James. Perhaps the most significant contribution the destroyers made was their support to the Army in Greece, Crete, and most notably on the Tobruk Ferry Run, noting the Allies weren't getting it all their own way at that time. Can you outline what they did? Well, what followed next, really, from March through to mid-1941, the next three months, was an incredibly busy period for the Australian destroyers, and indeed the entire Mediterranean fleet. So following on from the Battle of Cape Matapan, the Navy of the Mediterranean fleet first had to get the Australians, British and New Zealand forces to mainland Greece uh, for what subsequently become a very disastrous campaign. And then starting from Anzac Day, so um, Anzac Day, the 25th of April 1915, you then had the evacuation of some 50,000 British and Dominion forces. So, and this, the ships from the Scrap Iron Flotilla were in the thick of the action. So if we just take an example of, say, um, HMS HMAS Vendetta, for example, just to give an instance of what one of those ships was doing. So on the night of the 26th of April, Vendetta's whaler and skiff had ferried 350 soldiers in darkness from the shores of southern Greece out to larger waiting ships. Uh, Vendetta then rendezvoused with Waterhen and several other ships to form a convoy which sailed towards Crete. Lieutenant Commander Rodney Rhodes, who was commanding Vendetta, then recruited recorded what happened next. So 07, well, 07.30 in the morning, uh, received our first visit from the Luftwaffe. These came in three waves, two Stukas, two Mischerschmitt 110s and two Dorniers. No hits were registered, but there were several close misses. The next German air attack came just after 11am that morning. The Stuka dive bombers were driven off by British fighter aircraft and anti-aircraft fire from the ships. Now, three German bombers attacked the convoy again just before noon. Vendetta, though, and the other ships in the convoy arrived at Sunder Bay just at around 6.30 that evening. Now, Bill Reeve, who was now a chief petty officer in Vendetta, recalled the evacuation, and I'll quote, The worst of the wounded we were able to get into various mess decks, but quite a few were left on the iron deck with no, with no protection whatever. We had exhausted all of our small arms ammunition and organised the troops who had rifles to gather around the guardrails and fire volleys at the diving aircraft. It was very spectacular to see one dive bomber hit and plunge into the water amidst loud cheering from our troops. Uh, and that's just one day in terms of this action afterwards. Now, leading signalman Mick DeLittle, um, who was an board HMS Stewart, for example, um, so the evacuation from Creek was just one action. There's lots of activities happening throughout May. And uh, Signalman DeLittle's diary, for example, really just gives a litany of the ships that were damaged um, as the Royal Navy and the Australian Navy evacuated forces from Crete because it was a pretty harrowing time. So on the 28th of May, for example, Little noted in his diary, 
We went into dock today at Alexandria and saw Barham. Nothing left above X-Gun. Ajax also hit, and her armour plate is just like a sieve. Six ambulances alongside taking up casualties. The 29th of May, Perth hit, near Miss and Coventry. Glendale is straddled. Stukas get through the anti-aircraft fire. Thank God all bombs miss their mark. She's been a bastard of the day and still more to come, I reckon. 30th of May, Havoc bombed. Diary comes in with A and B gun turrets shot away. Learned that a plane crashes on Orion and bombs exploded. What a mess. And there is really very little um, respite or relief. So from May, or after May, at the end of May, the next major task became to maintain the vital lifeline to the siege garrison to Brook. Everything coming into the Brook had to be brought in by sea. So as medical, medical uh, food, medical stores, oil and petrol, mail and cigarettes. And this service probably proved the most taxing task assigned to the scrap line flotilla. Now, there's already been a, a really great episode in this podcast series about in an early episode about the Tabrook Ferry Service. Um, but just as a reminder, the nickname of the Tabrook Ferry Service was just one of the nicknames for the convoys. The Spud Run and the Mediterranean Passenger and Transport Service was also another. Now, Axis aircraft and submarines and sea mines hunted the Navy's approaches to Tabrook, which became known as Bomb Alley. More than 750 air raids in the harbour and the surrounds were conducted by German and Italian aircraft, and more than 30 ships were damaged and another 34 were lost. Now, the RAN's destroyers made a total of 109 ferry runs, and Vendetta held the record with 39 passengers. It carried over 1,500 troops into Tobruk and evacuated over 2,900, including wounded and prisoners of war and also brought in over 600 tonnes of stores. Lieutenant Commander Rhodes considered the conditions imposed on the Tehran as the most arduous experience by Vendetta's company with practically no sleep and only the scantest of meals. And really, these men had to work all the time and did all the time. It was during the, the Tobruk run that Waterham was attacked on the 29th of June by at least 18 German and Italian dive bombers. Waterhen was holed by several near misses and was brought to a stop. Signalman McDonald recalled seeing the very rivets in the bomb joints as they streamed towards you. The Stukas were awkward, bulky, bent wing horrors. Every detail is still in my mind. One bomb upset our steering. We became a sitting duck. Next bombs got closer and finally a thousand pounder burst right alongside our engine room. It blew a hole in our right side, right along the water line. Water hens suddenly tipped over and as, as the water flooded in below. Steam erupted out of the funnel with a roar. It must have been very frightening for the fellows in the bowels. Now, water hen flooded, it rolled over and then subsequently sunk in the early hours of the 30th of June. Fortunately, there were no fatalities as water hens company had embarked well, its company and its ship's company and embarked troops have been transport, transferred to the British destroyer HMS Defender. Uh, it's also probably worth noting too that the sloop HMS Parramatta was another Australian ship lost in the ferry run uh, and it was sunk on the 27th of November with 138 officers and ratings killed. That's a little bit of an aside. 
Now, it's not really surprising that steaming at high speed on repeated voyages with only short spells for maintenance really just fought, finally wore out these aging destroyers. Um, Vampire was the first one to go, sailing to Singapore for a major refit in late May. Voyager left the Mediterranean for a refit in July, followed by Stuart in August. And then finally, too, in October, Vendetta left to Singapore and refit. In the latter part of 1941, the Scrap Iron Flotilla entered a new phase of the war, following Japan's entry into the conflict. They did not operate together as a flotilla, so we'll now look at their each individual actions. John Nash. Vendetta went to Singapore for a refit in late 1941, and following the entry of Japan into the war, it was almost the end of Vendetta. What happened to that ship? Yes, indeed. Um, so uh, Vendetta, I promised to speak on at the start uh, as an aside, was the only RAN ship to be in active service at the end of both world wars. Uh, so she was present uh, at battles in 1917 and uh, in the um, North Sea. Uh, and she was even present in the Baltic uh, during the, the Russian Revolution, uh, supporting white Russian forces there. Uh, so she had a long, uh, long history. Uh, as for refit, um, as we saw, she left the Mediterranean uh, and arrived in Singapore for refit. Uh, she left the Mediterranean with uh, five different battle honours. Um, and under the command of uh, Lieutenant W.G. Whiting, R.A.N.R., um, he had a, a total ship's complement of two officers, six senior sailors, and 12 junior sailors of different rates. So a grand total John, of 21. John, R.A.N.R., was that uh, a reserve officer? Uh, he was, yes, he was. Uh, so worth noting uh, how integrated the, the reserve officers were uh, during the Second World War. Um, so when war broke out in the Pacific, uh, Lieutenant Whiting was faced with a, a pretty severe problem of having an immobilized ship in a dockyard uh, and a ship's company of 21. Now, the Japanese bombed Singapore in the early hours of the 8th of December, uh, 1941, uh, and a stick of bombs fell between Vendetta and Ghost Island, uh, a mere 200 yards away from the ship. So from that point onwards, the, uh, the ship's company was divided into two watches uh, for anti-aircraft defense and continued to man the anti-aircraft defenses day and night uh, for the next six weeks until they departed. Uh, so on New Year's Eve, they had their first real taste of a Japanese air attack when 54 planes bombed the city. Uh, now, Singapore experienced its worst attack on the 21st of January, 1942, when it was hit by 125 bombers. Uh, during the action, one of Vendetta's 12-pounder anti-aircraft shells hit one of the bombers in its bomb rack, uh, detonating the bomb and blowing up the aircraft. Uh, so they had great success with some of their anti-aircraft fire. Now for the remainder of January, they were under this constant air attack uh, and scrambling to get the ship ready to depart. Uh, so the boiler and engine rooms had been completely stripped down uh, their armaments and stores and many vital pieces of equipment uh, were all located in an armament depot and in the naval base, which was some 20 miles on the other side of Singapore. Uh, so they spent several days uh, trying to salvage their gun pieces, telescopes, spare parts, uh, and loading all of this onto trucks by hand uh, because there were no crane drivers on 
uh, available to, to operate the cranes. Uh, and they did this whilst Singapore was under constant heavy air attack. So uh, finally on the 2nd of February, 1942, uh, the ship was towed by the tug St. Just uh, out to meet its escort HMS Stronghold, a British destroyer. Uh, now, when they were about seven miles out, uh, a wave of bombers passed overhead and bombed uh, King's Dock, which included the wharf where Vendetta had vacated uh, about two hours beforehand. Uh, so thus began a very long journey from Singapore to Melbourne. Uh, on the 3rd of February, they were subjected to heavy air attack, um, and the, the, the commanding officer, Lieutenant Whiting, laconically commented, our 12-pounder was continuously in action. Um, this during a period when approximately 100 to 120 bombs were dropped around these three ships uh, and near misses caused splinter holes in the hull, funnels, bridge and wheelhouse. Um, now on the 8th of February, she was taken in tow by HMAS Yera and taken to Batavia, uh, where she spent a week there before being uh, towed on the, the final stretch to Australia, uh, escorted initially by Yera and then relieved by HMAS Adelaide on the 24th of February. Now on the 3rd of March, they finally arrived off Rottnest Island and picked up a tug at about 2100 that night. Um, they, heavy seas caused the tow to part uh, and they were reconnected and it parted again. Uh, and it was said the ship was so close to Cottesloe Beach that they could hear the waves breaking on the beach itself. Uh, nevertheless, they finally made it to Fremantle. Uh, and from there, they proceeded across the Great Australian Bight to Melbourne. Um, now, the, the Bight is not renowned as a very nice place to be uh, when the weather is bad. Uh, and at one point, they lost their tow and were adrift in a gale for 72 hours, uh, during which time they drifted 102 miles. Um, it's worth pointing out that during this entire trip, the, uh, there were only two qualified bridge watchkeeping officers. Uh, there was no power in the ship. There were no sanitary arrangements. Uh, and because of the absence of any refrigeration, they only had tinned food available to eat. Um, now this journey took 72 days. So 72 days and 40 days of that at sea, um, all of it under tow. Um, so quite an effort of seamanship and one that was, that was justly rewarded. Um, Lieutenant Whiting uh, and Gunner Lace were both awarded Distinguished Service Crosses. Uh, Chief Petty Officer Thorne and an able seaman Robertson were both awarded the Distinguished Service Medal. Um, so quite, quite a feat of seamanship to, to go from Singapore to Melbourne entirely under tow uh, while under air attack. Now, uh, from April to December of 1942, Vendetta was in refit in Melbourne uh, and then Garden Island in Sydney. Uh, in January 1943, she was dispatched to Queensland uh, where she uh, began convoy escort duties. Um, and she continued these duties uh, off the Queensland coast over to Darwin. Uh, in April, she made four journeys to Port Moresby and to the Australian base in Milne Bay, escorting transports. Now, there were no incidents during this period, but we know that the Japanese submarines of the third squadron were operating along Australia's eastern seaboard. And in two weeks in April, these submarines sunk four ships, uh, totaling some 25,000 tons with the loss of 87 lives. Uh, so for the remainder of 1943, Vendetta was involved in 
coastal escort duties along Queensland and New South Wales coasts. Um, she returned to Milne Bay in February of 1944, uh, continuing escort duties. Um, and in April and May, was used to transport troops in New Guinea. Uh, so between the 1st and 6th of May, she, she landed 501 troops and some 53 tons of stores. Uh, on the 23rd of June, she embarked some special unit, so Allied Intelligence Bureau personnel, uh, for a passage to New Britain uh, and landing them there, uh, only about 80 miles from the Japanese occupied Rabaul. Um, June, uh, she continued escort duties, and it was only on the 27th of July, 1944, that she fired her first shot in anger in the Pacific campaign. Uh, when she sunk a small Japanese boat uh, in New Guinea waters. Uh, again, she continued escort, uh, trans escorted with Swan and Barku, uh, an American transport with approximately 1,100 AIF troops for a landing in New Britain. Uh, it was unopposed, and afterwards the Australian units spent the day bombarding Japanese positions. On the 9th of January, 1945, Vendetta again resumed her duties in the area and bombarded the Anum River uh, in New Guinea, where she fired 206 rounds of four-inch ammunition at three different targets. Uh, following that, she uh, continued escort duties, uh, escorted the American submarine Stingray, uh, some Liberty ships. Uh, and on the 1st of March, she arrived at Hollandia, where she relieved HMAS Katoomba on anti-submarine patrols. Uh, she continued doing that uh, until the 20th of March when she arrived in Brisbane uh, and saw her war service come to a close. Uh, over the course of this war, the Pacific campaign at least, she'd managed to steam 120,000 miles. Uh, and afterwards, she uh, proceeded to New Guinea and to Rabaul uh, where she was uh, present for the uh, formal surrender of the Japanese Southeast Asia, correction, Japanese Southeast Area Forces uh, on the 6th of September. Yeah. So uh, that brought to a close uh, the service of Vendetta, uh, who saw both the First World War and the Second World War out. Well, sounds like Vendetta had a pretty tough war, you know, starting off in the Mediterranean in 1939 and then going all the way through to the Pacific Campaign in 1945. Indeed. Greg Pierce, Vampire also undertook a refit in Singapore and then later took part in the campaign in Malaya and Singapore. But then she was uh, involved in another action uh, where she was lost. What happened there? So after the fall of Singapore, Vampire was transfer transferred to Java and then the Indian Ocean. Uh, where a number of ships were attacked and sunk over a period of days by formations of Japanese aircraft launched from a large fleet aircraft carrier. The cities of Colombo and Trichomalee were also attacked. Vampire was lost on the 9th of April 1942 off Ceylon, present-day Sri Lanka, uh, in an attempted uh, protection operation for the uh, aircraft carrier HMS Hermes, uh, which experienced the Japanese airstrike. The two ships were caught off the port of Trichomalee. Hermes did not have any embarked aircraft as they had all been landed to contribute to the defence of Ceylon. Hermes was attacked by 85 dive bombers 
uh, and Vampire bravely stood by and contributed her guns to the air defence, but was unable to prevent Hermes taking 40 direct hits before sinking. The, the commanding officer, Commander Moran, managed to evade four near misses before the first direct hit struck Vampire amidships, exploding in her boiler room. Uh, unable to make headway, uh, she was struck a further four times uh, bef uh, before the order to abandon ship was given. Uh, Vampire's back was broken, um, the forward section capsized before she then sank by the stern. Nine of Vampire's crew were killed and the survivors were picked up by the hospital ship Vita. Now Vita had also uh, previously served in the Mediterranean and had been attacked by Stukas off uh, Alexandria and Trebrook. And on that occasion, another of the scrap iron flotilla, the HMAS Waterhen, had gone to her assistance. Carl James. We've lost Waterhen and we've lost Vampire. And Voyager is about to become involved in supporting the army in Timor. What was her service and ultimate fate? Well, we're about to lose Voyager as well. Um, Voyager returns from the Middle East and crosses the Indian Ocean. Uh, when it came back to Australian waters, um, it was, there was lots of evidence of the part she had played in the Mediterranean and the Middle East. Uh, and this is written by a naval officer who served in Voyager for much of 1942. And there were captured Brady guns, Fiat guns, rifles, glasses, knives, um, tr other trophies from the war in the Mediterranean, and apparently lots of stories. Now, in the Pacific, Voyager was used to resupply the Australian commandos of Sparrow Force who were on Timor, and they were conducting a very successful guerrilla war against the occupying Japanese. On the night of the 23rd of September, Voyager ran aground on the beach at Benito Bay on Timor's south coast uh, while, was trying, while was bringing the 2nd 4th Independent Company, so about 250 men, into reinforced Sparrow Force. The members of the Independent Company were able to safely disembark from Voyager, but the next morning it was attacked by Japanese aircraft, and, one of, and its anti-aircraft gunners actually were able to shoot down a Japanese bomber. Voyager, though, remained stranded, and was subsequently destroyed by demolition charges, uh, and its company were evacuated back to Australia aboard the Australian Corvettes HMAS Kalgoorlie and Warrnambool on the 25th of September. Now, I don't know if it's true, but I believe the wreck of Voyager can still be seen on the beach today if you go to Timor. Yeah, I think parts of the wreck are still there, and I recall that uh, in 1999 when we went to Timor, that uh, clearance divers had to go to the wreck of the ship at Matano Bay to uh, remove some World War II ordnance that was still on board. Finally, Greg Pearce, we've looked at the V&W-class ships. Let's now turn our attention to the destroyer leader, Stuart, and her unique final employment. Can you outline what her role was in the latter part of the war? So after returning from the Mediterranean, uh, Stuart underwent a major refit at Williamstown and she uh, dearly needed it as one of her turbines had uh, completely shredded itself on her way back from one of its Tribrook runs. And her entire journey from uh, Alexandria to Melbourne was done on, on one engine. Um, she served as uh, an ASW escort off the east coast of Australia during 1942 and 43. Uh, in '43, she again went into a refit, uh, and was, which further enhanced her anti-submarine warfare capability, including the fitting of a Hedgehog depth charge launcher on her bow and her first surface search radar. 
she continued her escort duties off the East Coast and conducted exercises with US submarines off Brisbane. Toward the end of 44 and into 45, she again went into a major refit and reconstruction, and it was probably during this period that a large cool or refrigerated room was installed in Stuart. And for the remainder of 1945, Stuart was used as a fast troop and supply uh, transport ship between Sydney, Brisbane and all points north, including Milne Bay, Medang, Biak, uh, Moratai, and as far north even as Subic Bay up into the Philippines, resupplying element, uh, other deployed elements of the Royal Australian Navy. Stuart was finally broken up for scrap on the Parramatta River near Ride Bridge, uh, current day in Sydney, uh, in around about 1947-48, having only lost six of her crew to accident, illness and misadventure during World War II. So in the end, she was a very lucky ship. She was a very lucky ship, and my grandfather referred to her as a very happy ship, uh, particularly under the command of Waller. Gentlemen, to conclude our uh, analysis of the Scrap Iron Flotilla, I'd like you to put forward any final thoughts. John Nash. Uh, yes. Um, I hope this has uh, illustrated how much work the destroyers did throughout the European and then the Pacific theatres of war, um, from escort, screening of battle fleet, anti-submarine warfare, naval gunfire support, troop transport. Uh, they really were the work workhorses of the fleet. Uh, and I suppose my takeaway, my takeaway would be that many people see naval warfare of the two world wars as big ships with big guns and submarines and carriers, uh, but the destroyers were there for all of it, and their flexibility and adaptability was pretty much unparalleled. Uh, and I'd say this of the scrap iron flotilla especially, but also the other destroyers of the RAN as well. Thanks, John. Carl, what are your impressions? Well, I think... John and Greg have really highlighted the diverse role of the, of this, um, the scrap iron flotilla in the Mediterranean. And in many ways, you're talking about a group of small ships who did a variety of different tasks. They did everything they were asked to do, performed incredibly well. And it really well demonstrates the variety of experiences performed, not just by members of the Royal Australian Navy, but the Australian forces during the Second World War in total. Um, and even it's also keep, worth keeping in mind that even though our story in the Med kind of finishes in mid-1941, uh, the RN made a significant and sizable and recognisable contribution to the war in that theatre right through to um, invasion of Sicily to 1943. Uh, and the scrap iron flotilla was really replaced by the N-class destroyers who went on and did amazing work in the Med, Indian Ocean and even in the Pacific. So the story has much, there's much more to the story than what we've been able to tell today. Thank you. And finally, Greg Pierce. Yeah, look, for me, it's an it's, it's a important contrast to today's operations. Um, having deployed a few times myself, for me, the most noteworthy thing was the indefinite nature of the Scrap Iron Flotilla's deployment to the Mediterranean. It wasn't the finite four, six or nine month deployments we currently know with, uh, with present day operations. When they sailed in 1939, they didn't know where they were going or for how long. Uh, the duration of their time away, the only contact they had with family was through written letters and, of course, the odd uh, box brownie snap that would be enclosed in the envelope as well. Uh, and it was the open-ended, uncertain and hazardous nature of that deployment that was hard not just on the sailors but the families at home as well. Uh, my mother was about six when my grandfather finally came home. 
Um, the ship pulled into Melbourne the tr- and he got a train to Sydney overnight. Uh, and she remembers leaving the house to go pick him up, um, to go meet him at, at Central Railway Station. And she turned to uh, her mother, my grandmother, and asked if they could take a photo with him so that she would know what her father looked like. And um, naturally, that greatly upset my grandmother. Thanks, Greg. Sadly, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Dr. Carl James, Flight Lieutenant Greg Pearce, and Dr. John Nash. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia, and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us, and if you've liked this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so that other people can learn the Australian Navy's History podcast series. Goodbye for now.